Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This is one of our fortnightly topical podcasts and I'm delighted to be joined by our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And we're also joined by one of our colleagues from the Centre for Policy Studies, Carl Williams. Carl is a senior researcher here. Hello, Carl. Hello. Carl is also a bit of an expert on the gas industry, which is obviously relevant to current events uh, in Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions. So we are, as always with these topical podcasts, going to split this into a few sections. We're going to start off by talking about, obviously, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, We'll move on to the effect of sanctions and also the withdrawal of private companies from Russia and what effect that's going to have on the Russian economy. And then on from that to the knock-on effects on the British economy and, and other Western economies, actually, in terms of a huge coming spike in the cost of living. And then we're going to round it off with something a bit closer to home here in Westminster, which is the disgrace of John Burko, the former speaker uh, who was outed as, well, confirmed as a, mm. as a bullying, uh, sort of abusive figure uh, in a pretty damning independent report earlier this week. So plenty for us to get stuck into. So we are two weeks pretty much to the day since Russia invaded. And it's pretty, while I wouldn't want to get involved in too many predictions, but we have no real idea how long this could go on for. I mean, Alice, it's fairly clear to me that this is not going to plan. It looked like Putin expected this to be over in the space of a few days. And and here we are. Yeah, it does seem like... uh... It's not going well. There's a much stronger resistance than he expected. We see this um, convoy of tanks that seems to have been stuck outside Kiev for weeks now, which is uh, quite strange. But I think it's quite difficult to have any proper sense of of what's going on, really, from where we are, because we're getting so many mixed reports. You know, somewhere like Mariupol, we just don't know what's happening there. There's an an information blackout. Um, So, yeah, it's just a very uncertain and um, difficult picture, I think. It is difficult. I mean... uh... Carl, I don't know how closely you're following sort of developments. There does seem to be a kind of fog of information here about what's actually happening on the ground in terms of uh, there's lots of kind of clips circulating on social mm. media and stuff like that. I mean, what's your broad takeaway after two weeks of this in terms of how it's going compared to how 
the Russian government probably thought it would go. I think broadly in line with Alice's assessment that they thought it was going to be a quick win, that the Ukrainian resistance would collapse, that they'd decapitate the government. Um, I think it's just really a testament sort of the, the courage and the fortitude of the Ukrainians on the ground that that's not happened. And all the military analysts, well, I say all, lots of the military analysts before the conflict was started were talking about the, the Russian war machine, how they'd modernised it, how they could gain air superiority, how they had this artillery and mechanised infantry force. And that just seems not to have materialised, from what we can tell. Yeah, um, I mean, sorry, Karen. I think that actually, you know, there's a lot of misinformation on Twitter, but also this is where Twitter can come into its own. Because you get really niche experts on, like, preventative maintenance on vehicles. I was going to mention friends, that, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, just showing that actually, whatever the Russian force strength might be on paper, on the ground, because they're not doing this basic stuff, because they don't have the radios and the logistics, it's just not working. It's but, remarkable, isn't it? Sorry, uh, Alice. Yeah, is there, is there a danger here, though, that, that that will uh, encourage Putin to escalate and to start using chemical or even nuclear weapons? That's that's the worry. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely... While I think a lot of the, the kind of Western reaction is one of shock and horror that an, an army can do this, in a way, anyone who followed, who's followed Putin's previous wars has seen exactly these tactics used before. I mean... A year into, well, at the very beginning of his presidency, the Russian army basically flattened Grozny in Chechnya. They basically, you label your enemy terrorists and then you flatten the whole city. Mm. That seems to be the kind of playbook. They did the same thing, what, four or five years ago in Aleppo, um, which has been reduced. I mean, a, a really quite big city has been reduced to, to basically rubble. And um, yeah, my, my concern now, along with all the obvious kind of humanitarian catastrophe bit, is that they're going through that same playbook they used in Syria. They're starting to, you're starting to see statements from the Russian foreign ministry saying, claiming that the Ukrainians are making biological and chemical weapons. And it's exactly what they did in Syria. And that's a precursor to that. Well, it seems that, according to kind of British intelligence, that this is them paving the way to use them themselves. Um, but my other worry is just that what, what, what is the West going to do? In, in response, we see what I think are quite kind of impotent calls for a no-fly zone that don't really get into what that would actually mean. If you're saying we want a no-fly zone, you're basically saying we want to join the war. Yes, we want to shoot down Russian jets. Exactly. And that will escalate very quickly. Yeah. I mean, what do you think, Carl? What do you think about this idea of kind of nuclear brinkmanship? Do you think that that whole World War Three thing is actually a valid argument? Or do you think it, we need to, need to call Putin's bluff to an extent? No, I, I do think it is a valid argument. Lots of people are making a point about how sort of the First World War snowballed and little actions escalated and no one could step back from the brink. And I just think, you know, it might be a, a long shot probability event, but it does happen, it is, you know, game over. Yeah, when, so the, when even... your tail risk is the end of the world. Exactly. You've got to tread fairly carefully. Alice, it feels to me as though it's become one of those things, and I, I kind of hate this term, but it does apply, where it's about virtue signalling, mm. where if you call for a no-fly zone, maybe not as a Ukrainian, I understand why Ukrainians are saying they're, they're there, in, yeah. they're, in the, they're in the thick of it, and they're just like, do something. Yeah. But for Westerners who aren't there, who just kind of quite vapidly going, oh, well, we should just introduce a no-fly zone. It's become a kind of badge of how seriously you take it rather than a policy proposition. Yes, I mean, this is a real difficulty I have even talking to this podcast about the war because I feel quite strongly that sort of armchair pundits 
like me who have no real insight into this should probably just stay out of it. I think it's it's easy to feel with social media and, and if like like us, your job is to have opinions. Yeah. That for an event as big as this, you you have to say something. But actually, sometimes you need to listen and amplify other voices who do know what they're talking about. And I think you see with these calls for a no flies in the sort of memification of the war by people who yeah. don't really know what they're talking about. And that could possibly have very, very serious consequences. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I find this quite difficult to talk about uh, yeah. as, as a sort of observer rather than a... There is, um, um, I, I agree, and one of the great kind of pleasures of doing this job is that we interact with lots of experts who know a great deal more about various topics, um, however niche. I mean, Carl referred there to... Um, tank wheel twitter basically <laughs> there's one guy who did a very popular thread about how the russians aren't maintaining their vehicles properly which is one of the reasons they've got this massive kind of convoy of stuff so i mean there is lot there are it, something like this does make you realize how deep the expertise goes in, in areas you would think are, are really tiny just to bring it back to uk domestic politics briefly the big row this week along with the kind of military strategy stuff and support for the Ukrainian armed forces is about the UK's, in my view, fairly pathetic response to the um, refugee uh, crisis. Now, we're basically the only country in Europe that is putting up kind of tick box visa rules at the moment. I mean, Alice, do you think, can you understand the rationale behind this? Or do you think that given the situation, we ought to just do what the EU are doing and saying, look, if you've got a Ukrainian passport, you're clearly in a perilous position. You ought to be able to come here. Yeah, I don't see why we're making people fill out several different forms when they're fleeing a war. Though, on the other hand, I do think a lot of this stuff about take more refugees is slightly aesthetic because we're a long way from Ukraine. A lot of these people are not going to have possibly no connection to Britain. They're going to want to stay nearby. Um, and people, so I think, you know, of course we should um, welcome any Ukrainian who wants to come here, but we should also be aware that <laughs> Britain is not necessarily the most attractive place in the world to a Ukrainian refugee. Do you think, yeah, Carl, do you think if we did waive the rules, there would be some great influx? It strikes me, we had a piece yesterday from a Ukrainian um, contributor pointing out that the Ukrainian population in this country is tiny. Mm. People are much more likely to go where their compatriots are, which is Poland. Yep. Or indeed Germany. There are 250,000 Ukrainians in Germany and 40-odd thousand in the UK. Yeah, well, I think it's instructive to listen to what the Ukrainian government is saying about it themselves. They want people to stay close by. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is the fear that if more people go to the West, they will end up staying there after the war and they'll have the sort of brain drain that happened to Poland or Romania when they joined the EU. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we're a massive outlier from that perspective at all. And I don't think this is a numbers game. I mean, you, you know, if we take in how many, 200,000 Ukrainians, does that mean we're a more compassionate country? Are, no, are we, are we saying we're going to bus Ukrainians away from Poland to Britain if they don't want to come here? I mean... I think there's two sort of separate arguments here, really, aren't there? There's what the route should be, but then there's what seems to me the complete incompetence with which <laughs> yes, it's being, indeed. being processed. So you could say we want to have some criteria... But let's make it easy for people who meet those criteria. And we're, not, we're, neither, we're doing no, neither one thing nor the other. So the obvious response, and, and it's been striking how many Conservative MPs have said this, has been to just like slice the Gordian knot. Just say, let's just waive all the rules. It'd be much easier. And we probably won't get a vast kind of influx of people anyway. Because, you know, 
they, like you said, they want to stay close. Probably don't. It's not like these people plan to emigrate. Mm. You know, they're not. They're not suddenly gone. Oh, you know where I fancy? I fancy living in Britain, just out of nowhere. Yeah, and I think it's wrong to say that Britain is not a compassionate country when it comes to our approach to refugees. I mean, if you look at uh, what we're doing for the Hong Kongers, these are people who have British passports, right? They have good, they have good reasons to want to come here. Um, and as I say, any Ukrainian who wants to come here should be welcomed, uh, absolutely. But if, what if they just don't want to come? Mm. I, mean, I think a destructive template here is what David Cameron's government did with Syria back in about 2015, which was will provide lots of funding to help people nearby, refugees in camps in Jordan and so on. But we will take a portion, I think it was 20,000 at the time, maybe it went up, yeah. of the most vulnerable people. You know, women and children, sort of, you know, children who can't get their chemotherapy because the hospital's been bombed by the Russians, those sorts yeah. of people, and prioritising that. But of course, as you were saying, the Home Office administration just doesn't seem up to be doing that in this situation at all. Yeah, we should probably clarify what we mean here. I mean, there was a thing about whether or not we even had a visa processing centre in Calais, there was a lot of mixed messages from the, the Home Office, including from the Home Secretary, saying, oh, we've got people there. It turned out it was three blokes with some packs of crisps and, uh, mm. <laughs> and a bit of water. Yeah, then the they, home... they told people to go to Lille, I think, yes. which is 75 miles away from Calais. Yeah, I certainly don't think that the Home Office should be adding to the kind of confusion and frustration that these people must be experiencing mm. when they're fleeing a war. The other thing I saw was, um, and probably several of our listeners have seen it as well, but it was... Um, a centre in Poland and it's sort of minus three outside and people are standing outside yeah. waiting to get in and apparently the officials told them we can only process 100 applications a day. And, you know, I, I appreciate that we're doing this somewhat from a standing start, but it still just seems we're not really pulling our finger out um, on this. Anyway, moving on to the kind of broader picture in terms of sanctions and the economy, I want to talk about the fact that US and the UK are both banning imports of Russian oil this week. Um, but we're also having a massive, much broader conversation about our energy mix. Now, um, Carl, you used to work in, would you say the gas trading industry? Is that a fair? Adjacent to it. The shipping industry will focus on natural gas and upstream oil and gas production. Yeah. So I mean, what's your view on the effect that, how much do we need to kind of reduce our own dependence on Russian gas, because as I understand it, we only get about sort of under ten percent of our gas from Russia, as it stands anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think before answering that specifically about the UK, it's helpful to put this in the bigger context of uh, European energy dependence on Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so about thirty-five percent of European gas demand is met through Russian gas, about twenty percent of its oil demand, and about eighteen percent of its coal demand. And when you factor in renewables in the energy mix and nuclear, add it all up, you get to uh, Europe consuming about 18% of its energy, primary energy imports from Russia. Um, so that puts in context the sort of the, the German reluctance, say, to completely disengage from Russian oil and gas right now. Yeah, they're um, still importing vast amounts of yes, gas now. Yes, there's the, the exemption to the SWIFT sanctions, which means they can still pay for it and the, the gas is still flowing. Okay. And in terms of sort of slack in the global system, if you like, to what extent can other producers fill a gap if we're not going to take oil from Russia? Can other OPEC countries produce more and how quickly can they do that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that question. There's, there's firstly, you know, can, can you move around the oil supplies so that we still get it from somewhere without upping production? 
Um, and you say, well, maybe if Russia oil goes to China and then instead of China taking stuff from the Middle East, we get that oil instead. Um, but that overlooks the fact that one barrel of oil isn't actually like another barrel of crude oil. Some are heavier than others, some grades are lighter, some are sweet or sour, which is to do with the sulfur impurities in it. So you can't just exchange one barrel for another. Right. And different refineries are geared towards different grades of oil. So you can't just swap things around and it all works out. There will be... So it's not fungible. You exactly, just... it's not fungible. Okay. In terms of up in production, um, yes, OPEC have spare capacity if they want to turn it on. But at the moment, with oil at $120 a barrel... I think they're happy just to take the massive sort of profit margins on that. And the other okay. source of uh, upwards production, of course, is the US shale production, which can ramp up extremely fast. I mean, we saw this back in 2018 as the oil price recovered from the downturn. They added 1.6 million barrels per day of production in a year. That's like a new Norway, just in the global oil markets. Yeah. So that's where extra production can come from. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's, uh, that brings us on to... Uh, a very kind of hot topic at the moment, which is British shale production. So Carillion has now shuttered its wells, um, which weren't really doing anything anyway. Um, but okay, just probably, I think it's Quadrilla, not Carillion. Carillion. Sorry, I'm an idiot. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Quadria. I've got got my uh, yeah. Carillion is a terrible. Um, contracting firm that went bust about four years exactly, ago. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, Quadria <laughs> has uh, has shuttered its wells. I mean. Alice, notwithstanding, we'll come on to what the effect of fracking might be on the British economy if we mm. did it. To me, it strites me as an absolute, the epitome of the kind of, what you call the Cheams mindset that besets British policy, that we just have given in on fracking. We've just gone, no, we can't really, we don't want to do it. Um, and I think we should at least, we, we, it feels like we barely even tried. Yeah, I agree. It's very frustrating. Um, it just seems like yet another victory for NIMBYs who've made up concerns about earthquakes and ugly wells. Yeah, I think that the earthquake thing is sort of, 
it's sort of technically true, I think, but not. it's not going to actually do very much. It's, it's sort of technically true. There's been a lot of studies that have rebuted this, and the, the one that gets quoted as a sort of 2.9 on the Richter scale, which, people, you know, in your head kind of that sounds like it could be quite big because, like, yeah. you see a, a factor 6 and that's tidal waves and so on. But then, of course, the Richter scale is by order of magnitude, so a, a factor 4 is 10 times bigger than a factor 3 and so on. So right. actually, 2.9 is, you can't really feel it. Right, okay. The other one I always used to see was like flaming taps. But apparently <laughs> that, that was just totally fake. So you'd turn on your taps if there was a fracking well near you and it would just burst into flames. <laughs> but uh, it, it, that became a real meme among anti-frackers. Like, look what's happening. I, th- I think like, I sort of sympathise a bit like with people being concerned about some massive bit of infrastructure coming up near their houses. But equally, the way I think to deal with that, I mean, Carl, you mentioned this in a recent piece for us about fracking is to compensate people, as with, as with other uh, thing, uh, things to do with development. So you could, for example, use the proceeds of auctions for fracking to compensate local people or indeed to just raise tax revenue and then spend it as you see fit. Yeah, I think if you, if you told a lot of people in Lancashire you can have 50% off your energy bills for the next five years if you were within 10 miles of a shale well, yeah. that would turn out to be quite popular. Let's just, let's just dig into the numbers briefly. I mean... There's a big confusion here because I've seen some MPs, for instance, tweeting things like we're sitting on a trillion pounds worth of shale wealth, which to me seems a bit wrong. For one thing, because you don't know what the gas price is going to be at any moment in time. So putting a number on it like that is a bit, you know, sticking a finger in the wind. Do we actually have a clear idea? of? Let's imagine we, we had a full throttle fracking. You can frack wherever you wanted in the UK, just for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Would it have a big impact on household bills, in your view? It's possible, but the problem is it's really hard to know, just because we've not done the necessary exploratory drilling in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of confusion arises because people see uh, numbers quoted, big numbers, like 2 trillion cubic feet of, of gas, whatever, or 2,000 trillion cubic feet, and the number is resources. And in sort of petroleum geology, without getting too technical, resources are what you can technically get out of the ground with existing technology. Even if it costs you £1,000 to get that last barrel out of the ground, you could do it. Um, but what we're interested in is reserves, which is what's economically um, extractable at current prices. So obviously reserves can go up and down depending on where prices are. Right. Um, but we just, you know, we have a rough idea of resources, but no idea of reserves because we've just not gone and tested so what I think some of, I mean, I'm very much pro-fracking, but I think we should be clear-eyed about what it would actually do. And I think what some of the pro, my sort of fellow pro people <laughs> are very enthusiastic do is they just get the biggest number they can and divide it by however many cubic feet and say that's how much we've got, um, which is absolutely... And even then, it's not the case that we would necessarily be the purchasers for that gas. We could export it if the gas price was higher elsewhere in Europe, wouldn't we, wouldn't we end, up, end up exporting it? Uh, potentially, yes. I mean, it, that comes down to the capacity in the pipelines at the end of the day. Okay. Um, so it, it's not that if we produce all this gas, it's all just going to escape into the national markets and that will set the gas price. Yeah. I, I think there is a bit of a misconception around gas that it's like oil, that you kind of have a few global benchmarks and they're very closely tied to each other. But the gas markets, there's more sort of three main regional markets still, America, Europe and Asia. And the prices move very differently. At the moment, US gas is about 10 times cheaper than European gas. So, so 10 times cheaper? Yep. 10 times cheaper. Wow. And sort of the liquefied natural gas trade has slowly been stitching together these global markets over the last two decades. Is that because you can just 
Is that because of shale? Or? It's not because of shale. It was going on before then, but shale has really accelerated it because it's turned the US into a net gas export instead of a net gas importer. Okay. And historically, a lot of shale projects have been tied to long-term contracts. So if you're a Japanese utilities company, you sign a deal with an Australian energy project, that's 20 or 30 years of gas you're getting. But the US uh, companies are selling it all on the spot market. Um, and that is creating this global market and will eventually bring prices closer together, but we're just not there yet. Right, okay. I think basically the upshot of all of this is that the government here in Britain has left with very few levers to pull over the mm. gas price. So, you know, w- whatever it does, we're all going to face a massive hit to the cost of living. And the government should really be thinking of other ways that it can alleviate that. It's definitely the wrong time for tax rises. Well, this was just what I was going to come on to. It's like, <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, Alice, you've beaten me to the punch here. So we're on, yeah, cost of living is... It was coming anyway. We were talking about this months ago, mm. saying April is going to be, pardon my Angela Merkelism, a complete shit show. Um, <laughs> because we've got, I think, the energy caps lifted and tax rises yep. at the same time. But now we're looking at, I think EDF have raised their um, benchmark or whatever it is by 54%. Oh, God. Like, that is the energy price cap rising. Yeah, that, yeah, that the right, that's yeah. the cap, that's, yeah. And they think that's an extra, what, £693 pounds per household? Yeah. Per year, I assume. <laughs> per year, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard some shocking ones from sort of individual people saying their bills have tripled or something mm. like that. Maybe they were on a quite low, good tariff before, yeah. and now it's going to be... I mean, that's going to... I mean, for a lot of people, I don't know, is there any kind of solace in the fact that we're heading into warmer weather and people use less gas i mean no because it'll be worse next winter and the winter after probably right because of the fundamentals of the global gas markets are just unless something changes pointing towards tighter markets right um and this is again this is an area people say well u.s shale we can just get that shale gas over here and that'll fix it but there isn't the capacity the lng capacity to get it here is that to do with shipping or? it's to do with the lng projects the export plants the mega projects the billions of dollars of investment they take years and years to, to right. do and there was a big gap in sanctioning new projects in the 2010s because they were all priced downturn. Um, so we've got uh, 2.4 billion cubic feet of US capacity online this year. And then 23, 24, 80% of LNG capacity coming on stream is Russian. So that's no good at all. Right, okay. Yeah, so we're, yeah. we're now in this situation where there's lots of gas in the US, but it can't get over here. And... Yeah. I mean, Alice, you mentioned other levers. I mean, what, what do you think the government can do we've had a few slightly piecemeal things we had this kind of um energy bill rebate um, which isn't really a rebate because you have to pay it back mm. and then there was a council tax thing which i didn't like very much at all it struck me as quite a kind of regressive policy to my mind you have the simple the one the big kind of living cost of living related reform of the last 10 years was bringing in universal credit by far the easiest way to just get money in people's pockets. Mm. And I think now no one is going to care if Rishi Sunak happened to reduce the £20 uplift last year and then brings it back. Um, so maybe that would be the, the sort of straightforward thing for the government to do. Well, that And not have the, the national insurance rise. Yeah, I said, as I say, definitely the wrong time for tax rises. I think one of the problems with the £20 uplift is that it wasn't very well targeted. So, you know, young, childless uh, households for which that's actually quite a lot of money were getting the same as, as households with much higher expenditures. So 
I, I think if there was a more targeted um, way to help through the benefit system, that's certainly something the government should look at. Mm, I think that's a really important point, the targeting. That's proven very hard. I mean, the council tax rebate, again, is not the best way to target this yeah. thing. No. Um, and in the short term, yes, we do need to find targeted ways to help people who are going to, you know, the people who are going to be the worst off. Um, but you know, looking ahead to next winter and beyond that, we need to find other ways to reduce the cost of living. If we can't do anything about international gas prices in the short to medium term, what else can we do? Can yeah. we bring down the cost of childcare? Can we bring down housing costs? Those sorts of radical supply side reforms ultimately... They're long term though, aren't they? I mean, they it's are a bit long-term. like when people say build more nuclear. It's like, well, it takes ages to build yeah. a nuclear yeah. plant and we've regulated the industry into being incredibly, incredibly expensive. Um, just on that, I think there was, uh, one thing I want to get off my chest is that the Green MP, Caroline Lucas, was saying, oh, it's really disappointing to hear MPs supporting nuclear because it's slow and costly and so on. It's like, but it's costly because it's slow, because it's massively overregulated. Mm. People don't seem to see that. They think, well, it must be kind of, I don't know, uh, correctly, you can't be too safe. It's like, but you can, actually, because it's got to the point where it's become so expensive that we've just stopped building Germany have shuttered their plants. France have shuttered mm. various nuclear plants. I mean, but the time frame, we're talking about sort of five, ten years, let's say, if we just suddenly decided to build lots of nuclear power stations. And who's, who's actually going to build them? Yeah, precisely. I, I agree completely. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, we're all agreed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a, a, a broader inflationary point here. Uh, and the way sort of what's happened with Russia and Ukraine is now interacting with COVID. Um, because... This was, you know, previously people were thinking inflation was going to spike or peak in April at about 7%. Now people are saying 8%, but around about 7% for the rest of the year through into 2023. Right. That's really going to erode people's living standards for a long period of time. Yeah. And you've got Ukraine coming on top of all the snarl-ups in the supply chains that are still there from COVID. You've got ships queuing up 80 deep at major ports like um, Port of Los Angeles or Long Beach. You've got Chinese factories and ports or even whole cities just being shut down as they pursue the zero COVID policy. That's causing chaos in the supply chains. Yeah, it's interesting. We, COVID, we haven't mentioned COVID at all on this podcast. It seems to have just uh, not completely evaporated. But you, you see, because of Russia, Ukraine, like mm. people aren't really talking about this fact. And, and China is having a bit of a nightmare on the COVID front, mm. as you mentioned. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the way it interacts with the, the crisis because a lot of components for wind turbines, for example, are manufactured in China. And projects in the UK now are facing delays and cost overruns because they can't get the components over because of all these problems. And yeah, you know, now more than ever, we need to be expanding capacity to deal with the fact we want to disengage from the Russian energy system. Do you think, um, I mean, there's an element here where it is just, I feel the degree of sympathy. I've said this before on the podcast. I feel a degree of sympathy with ministers in the sense that, that like Alice said, there are only so many levers they can pull. The, big, the person who's going to have the most effect on our government's choices is really Vladimir Putin mm. or, or perhaps someone in his court uh, who decides <laughs> the things. You know, I, I think for what it's worth, just to return to the, the theme, I think the sort of odds of a kind of palace coup are dramatically overstated. Um, I don't think people have really uh, intuited how completely dominant Putin is over that, over that system. Um, but yeah, I mean, the length of the war ultimately will probably be the thing that decides just how bad it, it gets. Um, on which happy note, um, we're going to turn to um, we're going to turn to sort of domestic 
Westminster matters. So earlier this week, the independent expert panel produced a report on the conduct of a Mr. John Burko. Um, not Lord Burko, because he never got his peerage, thankfully, um, despite Jeremy Corbyn nominating him, which I think is quite funny. Um, now we shouldn't laugh because, you know, the behaviour that he displayed was was pretty appalling. Just to briefly set it out, this was about... There were three complainants that this report covered, um, two of whom were parliamentary staffers, and one is still a, a parliamentary staffer, uh, Kate Ems, I believe her name is. Um, and, I mean, Alice, I don't know if you've had a chance to read through it, but, I mean, it's really quite alarming, isn't it, the way... We all kind of had this idea that Burko was a bit self-important and there were lots of rumours about his behaviour, but it really sets out in quite fine detail just what a kind of nightmare he was to work for. Yeah, absolutely. There's stories Sorry. about him smashing phones. He swears. He goes into these kind of incredible rages. He mimics people. He mocks them. But I think you say we all we all knew he was a bit pompous. But actually, I think you could see it was plain to see that he was a bully. He bullied MPs from the chair, having funny little names for them, interrupting the prime minister. This behaviour was in plain sight, and he got away with it for ten years. And I think it's great that we've got this um, independent report that this you know, the outcome of this process has been so damning. But he was allowed to remain Speaker for a decade. And he left the job at a time of his own choosing. So, um, you know, it's great to see this conclusive outcome. But frankly, it's far too late. Um, Carl, were you always in the... uh, I imagine, I'm just guessing, you were always in the Burko sceptic camp. I I think that would be a fair assessment, yes. I think there's sort of two separate things here, again, where I think... um, do you think it's fair to say people gave him a much easier ride? If he hadn't been Speaker during the Brexit wars, do you think he'd have got as easy a ride as he did up until now? No, definitely not. I think he was seen as, as vital to stopping Brexit or watering it down and therefore survived primarily for that reason. Yeah. I mean, my view on this is... Well, it's two things. One is obviously it's appalling. I abhor bullying of any kind and like... And the kind of behaviour. He just comes across as so petty as well. Like He complains about not being able to take toothpaste or was it shaving foam uh, onto a flight, which is just the kind of... He's got a sort of princeling type behaviour. But the other thing is that, I mean, now with a bit of time, he like completely abused the position of Speaker. And loads of people who supported what he did just completely turned a blind eye, not just to the bullying. I mean, Alice, you worked in Westminster when he was Speaker. There were, everyone knew it was more than just the odd rumour, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's important to say that there's a culture in Westminster that enabled this kind of behaviour. It's not yeah. just Burko that behaves like an entitled princeling. There are plenty of MPs who act the same. And I think it's worth remembering that, so this um, uh, report was the outcome of a, uh, an HR process, essentially, that protects house staff, so people who work for Parliament. But there are thousands of staff working in Westminster who are employed directly by MPs. These are kind of young, impressionable graduates who often stay in the job for maybe 18 months or so, and they don't have anything like the same kind of protections. Um, and let's not forget that it's MPs who enabled Burko to carry on in this job for so long. So we, we really need a much better stronger culture in Westminster that makes sure this never happens again. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it was very striking as well that he was only really made speaker on the back of Labour MPs' votes in the first exactly. place. Exactly. It was, it was quite partisan right from the start. Mm. Yeah, and he was the kind of the... 
he wound up, it was strange because he was nominal, he was the most nominal Conservative MP <laughs> I think you could ever have had. Um, and now I, th- he's, I think I'm right in saying he's actually been suspended from the Labour Party, <laughs> which he then went and joined, which, um, you know, it's, it's fair enough, I, I guess. I mean, do you, are there kind of broader lessons about the process here? It seems to me that this took far, far too long. Yes. This first came out in 2010. That there were there were allegations in 2010. There was a Newsnight program in, in 2018, which said this, and we're here in 2022. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think one of the biggest problems in Westminster is that there's such enormous imbalances of power. So you know, if you're an MP staff, you're a sort of 20-something graduate straight out of university, and the MP is you know one of the most powerful people in the country. That's the sort of power imbalance that can lead to abuse, mm. and we've seen it we've seen it multiple times and staffers who are junior in this way just don't have any kind of redress you know previously there is now an independent process but previously they were told to either go to the whips you know the whips have very different interests uh or to go to their managers which is of course the mp themselves so um i think this is a much broader cultural problem uh but i think you and it's a problem that is attendant to power I think one thing we can say, though, is that his successor, um, Lindsay Hoyle, has not exhibited uh, many of the same tendencies. Big improvements. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I've noticed, I don't know if you guys watch PMQs much, is that it's a hell of a lot shorter now. Yes. Which is, um, I mean, uh, Carl, you're, you're um, a bit of a history buff. Um, what's your view on the kind of, the, the, the role, what do you think the kind of proper role of the Speaker should be in, in terms of kind of parliamentary procedure? Is it just to be someone who kind of organises the flow of things? Or should they, or is it reasonable, actually, for them to have an active role, if not a partisan one? No, I think largely their role is as a sort of a neutral referee to ensure proceedings are going ahead, that things aren't being disrupted. Yeah, so that debates can take place in a manner that's civilised and not going to lead to unnecessary conflict and allow things to be talked out. You know, yeah. we don't want these scenes you see in some parliaments of, you know, Representatives literally fist fighting each other. Yeah, yes. Um, and especially, I suppose the the speaker has another role too, and that is representing the interests of the house against the government of the day and any encroachments on its power. Um, but that's something we saw kind of quite badly abused under Burko. Yeah, it was always said by his defenders that that was his great quality, and it it is true to a degree that he did kind of give backbenchers more of a voice, but. The thing I think that really wound people up, as well as the personal conduct, was the way he would select certain amendments mm. that were much more favourable to the kind of Remain cause and so on. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish the reforms he put in place before Brexit, like giving backbenchers more of a say in how things were run, and more of a voice, which, yeah, I think definitely a good thing. But yes, when Brexit came along, he yeah. quite clearly chose a side and manipulated proceedings to a degree to favour the side he liked. Yeah, so much, however much our personal distaste for him, we should, perhaps shouldn't throw the baby out entirely mm. with the, with the bathwater. Yes, well, speaking of the baby, I think he also made it quite a lot more family-friendly. He uh, had fewer very late-night sittings. And... Yeah, this has become a big thing lately with um, my MP, in fact, Stella Greasy, yes. uh, who has been pictured with her baby at sort of one in the morning getting into a cab, which... Um, yeah, it just seems pretty suboptimal for legislators to me. I think it, it, I think it's fair to say that Parliament is, in any case, a fairly un- unusual workplace and one that is not, given it's International Women's Day this week as well, Alex, uh, one that's still not very conducive to 
to mothers or anyone with a family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Parliament actually has quite a lot uh, of better set up for mothers than many other workplaces. There's a nursery on site. Uh, it operates in term, so uh, in the holidays you can be at home with your family. But but it is fair to say that if we want a more diverse um, Parliament, the the whole setup just isn't very conducive to it. If you have to, if you've got a constituency that's a lot considerably further away than Walthamstow. Um, yeah, well, you can't see your family about, at all. Uh, 40 minutes to Parliament, I can yes. tell you that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if you're a London MP, you know, you could, you're not far from work. But if, you, if your constituency's in Scotland, say, you Ooh. know, when are you supposed to see your family? It's, um, so, yeah, there are a lot of problems with the, with the setup. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's one for another, another time, the debate on whether we should actually pay MPs more or there should be fewer of them or anything like that anyway it's been a i'm afraid it's been a rather glum edition of the podcast which is kind of inescapable given what's going on in the world at, at the moment um but uh, alice thank you very much as ever thank you my pleasure and carl thank you for bringing so much as we talked about niche expertise a lot on the podcast <laughs> so much niche expertise on a, a topic which is actually not niche at all and is going to affect us all hugely in the years to come thank you and yeah, Thank you. And I would encourage you all as well to read um, Carl's piece about fracking on CapEx. If you just type CapEx fracking into Google, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, It's had a lot of people talking about it this week and it really gets into the kind of nitty gritty of uh, of the shale question in the UK. Oh, and please do leave us a review. Yes, as ever. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. If you didn't enjoy the podcast, just just don't say anything. (laughs) That's fine. Uh, Our next uh, podcast episode is next Friday, and it's with the Money Week's editor, Merrin Somerset Webb, on her new book, Share Power. (laughs) 